Welcome to the Levy Institute podcast. My name is John Harvey, and I'm the Hal Wright Professor of Economics at Texas Christian University, and I'll be your guest host for the second episode of the Levy Institute's podcast. The Levy Institute is a nonprofit, nonpartisan public policy research organization and is starting this podcast to create and share conversations in economics and public policy that move beyond the conventional approaches. And today I'm joined by Pavlina Chernova, a professor of economics at Bard College a research scholar at the Levy Institute and a founding director of the Bard Economic Democracy Initiative. And I've really been looking forward to this. I have known Pavlina since she was in grad school, which was uh, two or three years ago. I'm sure. I don't remember how long ago that was now. Yeah, so, maybe just a, a touch longer. Okay, okay, fair enough then, fair enough. So, But we have a lot of great stuff we can talk about today. Um, and uh, Pavlina, thank you very much for coming on here today. Thank you, John, for having me. It's great to talk to you again. Sure, sure. Uh, and uh, gosh, all kinds of places we can go. But let's let's go, if you don't mind, first off with a very recent piece of yours, Seismic Shifts in Economic Theory and Policy. Uh, I want to discuss that. And, and there you make the argument that MMT-inspired policies are, are hardly radical or, or untried, given that they describe precisely how we have conducted monetary and fiscal policy in both the past and very recently, just not to the appropriate degree or, 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 or with you know the, the beneficial ends in mind. But before we jump into that article, I wonder if it, you know, I don't know how much the listeners are familiar with MMT. I wonder if it'd be possible for you to spend a few minutes just giving everybody sort of a, I know this is hard to do, but but a, but a summary of the essential points. Yeah, no, absolutely. I uh, The most important thing about MMT is to note that it is just a framework for understanding the monetary system. Um, MMT basically points out that money is not just some kind of tapestry of privately created financial assets from bank deposits to deriv derivatives, but the currency itself in its physical or electronic form, um, which is the final means of payment of all debts, is fundamentally distinct from other forms of money. The currency itself is issued by public financing institutions, uh, central banks, treasuries, ministries of finance. And uh, it represents perhaps the purest form of monopoly. Um, so in a way you can think of it as a public good. And I think it's fair to say that until recently, the academy had not explored the implications of this basic observation of a basic fundamental style as fact that um, the currency is, a, is a, a public monopoly. And so maybe we can run through some of those implications. You know, the, the very first one, the obvious one, is that uh, governments who issue their own currencies and uh, manage them, uh, essentially self-financing. So, you know, the whole notion that those uh, governments can run out of money, that they can max out their credit cards. Those are flawed notions. So what we tend to look at is um, not just at the currency, but how those financing institutions interact, uh, how central banks and treasuries coordinate to make sure that they meet all government payments. Um, and uh, 
Then we also advance a framework for thinking about the spectrum of what we call a monetary sovereignty. Because as we know, there are some nations that have voluntarily abdicated that kind of exclusive privilege to issue the currency. The uh, European Monetary Union would be one example, dollarized nations. Um, and then somewhere in between, you will find other monetary systems where countries will have some kind of institutional firewall, some form of monetary arrangements that are deliberately designed to constrain public spending. So you can think of currency boards as an example, you can think of various fixed exchange rates. So MMT gives us that framework for thinking about monetary sovereignty. And then really what its strength has been is to clarify these operations. How would um, you know, monetary and fiscal policy operations, uh, how coordination uh, would occur um, uh, between the fiscal and monetary institutions and how it would not or would be hampered in other cases. So it does suggest a certain institutional design uh, that yeah. would enable bold public action. Um, but in and of itself, I have to say that MMT is, is not necessarily kind of a, a, a proposal for, for a particular type of policy, um, although it does lead, it does, it does suggest, open the, the, the door to thinking about uh, government spending in new ways. Uh, some of the other implications, just to, to run through them quickly, is that if indeed currencies tend to be uh, public monopolies, then we could ask the question, what are taxes for? And there's a long historical literature on this. I'm not going to go through that. But basically, MMT argues that taxes are there to create uh, demand for that currency. And that, indeed, they are uh, designed to transfer some kind of resources from the public's uh, domain, from the private domain to the public sector. You know, people working, delivering some kind of commodities to earn the currency, uh, which will satisfy the tax. Uh, so that really flips conventional uh, logic on, on its head. But there are a couple of other implications that are important for the current debate on government debts and deficits, that indeed those are sustainable. Uh, that defaults are really not, at least voluntary de defaults, are really not you know, something uh, sovereign currency nations should be worried about. Um, and that deficits in and of themselves are uh, not... Uh, some kind of uh, reflection of a terrible economy, but they actually represent the, the difference between the contribution, the spending the government has made into the economy and what it has withdrawn in the form of taxes. So deficits are essentially an accounting record of private sector surpluses. I'm happy to talk more about that, but it's really important because in economics, there is this notion that government deficits actually rob the private sector of, of its resources and finances, and it's called the crowding out effect. But indeed, it turns out it's exactly the opposite. Deficit spending crowds in financial assets. So that's really the gist of it. But understanding money as a public institution changes everything. And it does help us to understand uh, certainly what took place during 2008 and 2020, but it also helps us to think uh, in other ways about uh, public policy. Well, you know, something you said there about the, about the crowding out, I, I think that a unstated premise there is that we're already at full employment, <clears throat> that in the neoclassical and the mainstream view, uh, they view these deficits as crowding out because, gosh, if it weren't for these deficits, the, the private sector would have used those resources uh, for something that all of us want. And, and you know, so much of this, 
I, I, I don't know, as someone that was trained mainly as a neoclassical and then, you know, sort of figured things out a little bit at the time as I started reading institutionalist and post-Keynesian literature, where the full employment assumption is just all over the place in neoclassicism. And this is another example of where, well, yeah, I mean, you know, it, 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 well, but, but trade theory and, and, and here with, with the debt and the deficit, it, it would have been taken care of by the private sector had we not intervened. Um, you know, you were talking about issuing currency, and I always think about, and I use this example with my students, my wife, Melanie, she teaches fourth grade, and she issues something called Harvey Bucks. Uh, and Harvey Bucks you get for doing a really good job on an assignment or for being nice to another kid, that sort of thing, right? So so she can never run out of those. Now, she runs a, a pretty much perpetual deficit in, in Harvey Bucks. Um, but, you know, why do they care? Well, she doesn't tax them, all right? That, that would be, of course, the way we, we do it in real life. We, we tax somebody. Uh, but she has a box full of stuff you can buy. Uh, or you can buy your way out of a homework or something like that. So, you know, well, what is it? Minsky says anyone can make up their own money. The, the, the trick is getting somebody else to accept it. Uh, and so that's what the, you know, the, the taxes do. Um, well, in the article, uh, given that background, in the article, uh, you highlight the fact that the discipline has downplayed the importance of fiscal policy in the past. But recent events have, uh, in fact, if not in theory, moved fiscal policy back to the fore. And in addition, you make the argument that it's not even clear we should be drawing such a strict line between fiscal and monetary policy. Uh, could you go into that for us? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think most folks don't fully appreciate that the um, extraordinary measures that the central bank undertook during 2008 were, to the extent that they were successful, were largely successful be, uh, because of something that we can call a fiscal component. In fact, this is the kind of the terminology that Ben Bernanke used in his own work when he was trying to lay out a framework of how a central bank should act in the case of, uh, of a financial crisis. And uh, I'm referring to a paper he wrote in 1999. It's almost 10 years before he himself mm. had to deal with, uh, with a crisis of, of such proportions. And he was reflecting on the Japanese case. Mm. It's a really piece, uh, like a really useful piece uh, of of academic literature, um, because his his measures were not ad hoc. They were, in fact, uh, it seems, carefully thought through previously. And in this uh, in this article, he outlines the kind of four steps that a central banker can do can undertake to pull the economy out of a uh, of a recession. And you know, he he listed the, the you know some of the um, the measures that we are familiar with, such as like forward guidance. You know, and this is this is the idea that central bankers can use the bully pulpit to instill confidence in the investment community, uh, and hopefully that will kickstart investment. But he even Ben Bernanke calls this cheap talk. Yeah, I know cheap, uh, 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 cheap talk where MMT would refer to it as confidence fairies kind of policy. <laughs> but the other three measures that he outlines, you know, they, there's a blurred line between monetary and fiscal policy there. So, you know, one of them, uh, he says, is the central bank can pursue currency depreciation and hopefully, you know, kind of stimulate export-led growth. But the way to do this is through the purchases or, or sales of currency and the legal authority of doing so doesn't rest with the central bank. It, it rests with the treasury. 
And indeed, even on any given day in these kind of managed floats uh, monetary systems, central banks and treasuries coordinate uh, mm -hmm. as they decide how many currency, you know, what, what kind of currency they should pur purchase, what type of open market operations they should engage in. Um, so this is not, you know, something that, um, you know, most folks think about that kind of inherent coordination. But the big measures that were pursued were the asset purchases um, after 2008 to essentially make these insolvent uh, banking institutions solvent. And as, as you know, central banks are not permitted to buy assets. They have a clause that allows them, uh, you know, lending against wide range of assets in extraordinary measure, in extraordinary circumstances. But the purchase of assets such as mortgage-backed securities, CDOs, CDSs, is really has to be authorized again by Congress and again done in coordination with the fiscal authority. So here, you know, once again, it's, you know, you can think of it as a more traditional fiscal policy, if you will. And government has decided, let's just, you know, do a credit injection in these, in these banks. And um, that uh, happens again through this coordination. The next uh, piece would be, well, Bernanke argues, look, you know, this is all well and good. Even in his article, he suggests that this might be, even if it's legal, might be hugely unpopular. And indeed, public policy has another tool to stimulate aggregate demand. And he calls that money financed um, uh, transfers. Like, what does this mean? Money financed transfer essentially is a pandemic check. Mm -hmm. Government sends a check to um, households, they get deposited in the banking institutions, and the Federal Reserve clears those checks, a pretty straightforward thing. And, and he suggests that this might be, in fact, far more effective policy than the monetary policy measures he previously listed. Of course, this is not under the purview of central banks. So he himself couldn't pursue this kind of policy during 2008. But that discussion, to me, really intersects well with, with the MMT articulation of the effectiveness of monetary policy, that indeed we can have all this coordination. And I would say that's probably the strength of MMT clarifying operations, that we can see how these bills are paid. We can see where the assets go and how these you know, injections and reserves can occur in the banking system, but we might not see the requisite economic effects and that there are more effective ways in stabilizing um, an economy and fiscal policy is, is, is probably the way to go. But I think that the, this, the 2008 financial crisis gave us uh, the longest, most sluggish recovery, and in some ways paved the way, opened the door for this far more aggressive fiscal action that we saw in 2020. And of course, the end result was that we also ended with the fastest recovery in, in mm -hmm. post history. You mentioned that one of the strengths of MMT is understanding the actual mechanics of, of what goes on. And if I may, just for a second, relate a story uh, where I had an exchange with a monetarist economist. And of course, they're supposed to know all about monetary policy, right? Um, I've made a post on my Forbes blog about money growth doesn't really cause inflation. And a very nice man commented, this is back in the old days when I still answered the comments, um, a very nice man who got his PhD at University of Chicago. Uh, commented and said, you know, uh, I had said it's impossible for the central bank to create an excess supply of money because money cannot exist until it's in somebody's portfolio of assets. So they must want it. 
Um, and he says, well, uh, except that there would be no inflation if we couldn't have excess supply of money. And I said, okay, so how do they do it? What tool does the Fed have that allows them to, to you know, give someone more money than they actually want in their portfolio of assets? Uh, and it's just monetary policy. Obviously, with fiscal, we can do it, but just monetary policy. He said, well, it's like when you put logs in a fireplace. I said, no, 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 no. But, great. I love analogies, too. But, but, but how does the Fed do it? Well, it's like when you have an orchard full of apples. No, 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 no. He could not answer what should be the most basic question for any monetarist. What is the actual tool that the Fed has that allows them to do this? And, and we finished off very amicably. Uh, he said, well, we must agree to disagree. And I said, okay, all right, but you don't know what the hell you're talking about. Um, so anyway, certainly. But I think that they should also read Bernanke himself and many other monitors who, are, you, know, uh, you know, conventional economists who have argued that uh, there's no way in which central banks can rein money unilaterally on the population through monetary policy. It's very odd that he, you know, was called helicopter Ben when right. in fact it wasn't possible to do that through monetary policy. The only thing monetary policy could do is an asset swap, swap, you know, provide some kind of loans, liquidity to the banking system, but not really increase the money supply um, in its on its own. Right, right, right. And, and just to highlight for listeners that that, that this really is a huge strength of MMT that MMT and post-Keynesian institutionalist economists in general care about the actual institutional structure of the system. And, and you know, clearly, I guess it all goes back to the Friedman, um, well, it doesn't matter how realistic the assumptions are as long as it predicts well. Um, you know what? I was a physics major once, um, and we also thought that the more realistic the assumptions were, we probably would get a better prediction too. Uh, so anyway, but that, 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 uh, that reminded me of that. Well, uh, you already mentioned the federal government deficits, uh, and uh, would you mind explaining the, further the MMT position regarding deficits? And, and in particular, uh, you, you point out in the article that MMT is agnostic about the fiscal position. They don't care if it's surplus or deficit per se. That's not the issue. Uh, what, what is the issue then? Yeah, the MMT position is that first we have to recognize that deficits are uh, a reflection, an accounting record of the surpluses that have accumulated in the non-government sector. Um, basically, the fundamental, you know, the, the simple example that we can use is if the government spends, you know, a hundred billion dollars, but it removes only, you know, 80 in the form of taxation, 20 billion must reside somewhere in the economy. And so the what we call a deficit of 20 billion for the government is exactly equal to the corresponding 20 um, in the private sector. And, and this is really uh, quite straightforward and quite simple, but it has two important implications. The first one is that any talk of eliminating the deficit necessarily implies that we must be eliminating those surpluses that have accumulated in the economy. Any advocacy for the government to mind its budget um, and move it into surplus is in the same breath advocating that the non-government sector has to run deficits. And as we just articulated, the public sector can finance its deficits because they are self-financing and it has the financing institutions, whereas you and I have to go to the bank, we have to get a credit card, somebody will have to look at us and then say yay or nay. 
That's the, the first um, implication um, that, you know, we really need to be looking at these deficits in context. The second implication is that really looking at an accounting ratio in and of itself is not a useful policy goal. Uh, and, and to a large degree, MMT wants to move the conversation away from, well, can we support these deficits? Can the government spend and pay its bills? To the question of how, I mean, these are really the substantive and important questions. And if we are not able to understand operations, we are not going to have a productive conversation on how the government should pursue its public policy. Because as we just witnessed, you know, we um, had by any measure in the post-war era, the most extraordinary fiscal injection to stabilize the economy uh, during COVID. And no one blinked an eye, no credit, private creditors were called to put the bill. No taxpayers were also called. The, it was a real uh, life demonstration of the sort of things that MMT has been articulating. And then the question then becomes is, okay, well, what did we get uh, in exchange? Um, and there is a wide uh, variety of fiscal policies that can be pursued for whatever specific economic ends. Uh, we have. But I think just to connect this back to the previous conversation, operationally, the fiscal components of monetary policy and these big uh, CARES Act and budgets that were appropriated, operationally, those payments are made in the same way, but they clearly delivered two very different results. One was the longest, most protracted jobless recovery we had seen when we relied so heavily on monetary policy, where the other was the swiftest, most rapid recovery um, when we use fiscal firepower. And you know, from here, I think the next conversation uh, at the policy level we could be having is, well, um, is there a better way to do policy on a normal day? not just in the midst of a crisis. Right, right, exactly. Uh, now, you mentioned that when the government targets a, a surplus uh, for its budget, that this creates a private sector deficit. Did this, in fact, happen at the end of the Clinton years when we had these big government surpluses? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you remember how uh, celebrated the Clinton surpluses were. And this was right around the time when MMT was... Uh, really building out its research agenda. Um, and there were probably two important events that um, provided a lot of the uh, empirical real life uh, kind of study case for MMT. One was the Clinton surpluses. You know, while everyone was celebrating Clinton surpluses, MMT was sounding the alarm. We are seeing unprecedented private sector deficits. Um, we know that that uh, cannot be sustainable. Um, that is accompanied by increasing financial fragility, indebtedness, levels of indebtedness we had not seen uh, before. Um, certainly not before, you know, maybe the, the roaring 20s would be the comparable episode and we know how well that ended. <laughs> um, the second thing that we uh, studied very closely was the impending launch of the Euro. And and in some ways, you could say that MMT began as a study of a non-sovereign case, right? mm -hmm. the, the, the Eurozone, and that uh, that kind of divorce that had taken place between the monetary and fiscal authorities would uh, be hugely problematic for tackling crisis. And when 2008 arrived, it was once again, uh, you know, validation of our predictions. 
very curious, I think, um, to see how during two, uh, the COVID pandemic, the Eurozone in a way scrambled to rediscover its monetary sovereignty. It lifted its deficit and debt limits. It lifted its, um, you know, the central bank had purchase asset purchase programs to make sure that um, na nation states, member nations um, uh, debt is uh, financed that uh, you can pursue these COVID fiscal policies without the straitjacket of the Eurozone. You know, it, it, again, full employment's coming back into my head um, that, you know, the Eurozone makes perfect sense if all, every economy automatically tends, I shouldn't say perfect sense, but makes more sense if every economy automatically tends towards full employment and we don't have anything to worry about. Um, th there's, you know, late in the general theory, Keynes says something about um, economic theory being far more important than vested interests and all this kind of stuff. And, and I'm, I don't know if I've ever totally bought into that, but I can look around the world and think to myself, my gosh, if we simply had a different economic theory, if, if economists, you know, our, our words matter. Um, when the medical profession all agreed that smoking caused cancer, then, you know, they were united behind this. Then this created a change in you know, eventually uh, a change in policy and a change in, in, in you know, American habits. What if economists all came from this same perspective? I mean, we were all arguing, no, you idiots, don't do it that way. Anyway, that, that, that one of those things that keeps me up at, at night. Um, you know, you were mentioning uh, that the importance of deficits in terms of, of, of federal government de deficits in terms of creating um surpluses for the private sector. And there are actually some people in the private sector who have figured that out. I know you and, and Stephanie Kelton have, have on occasion quoted from a prospectus from some investment firm now that apparently discovered Koleski uh, and, and is, is keeping track of, hey, the deficits are going up. That means the profits will go up. So, you know, it's again, sad that here the private sector has figured out something that the uh, mainstream economics has not. Well, Oh, go ahead. Well, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, Goldman Sachs called the uh, the sector balances chart yeah. most important chart that you will ever see, and they use it in their analysis. But um, you know, I should say that uh, before I became an academic, uh, I worked at the Levy Forecasting Center mm. uh, time, uh, which used the Koleski perspective to um, forecast corporate profits. And you know the financial industry listened to this approach because it was well. First, it was buttoned up. It was stock flow consistent. Um, yeah, it yeah. accounted for you know uh, all parts of the economy. Uh, we didn't leave anything out, and it really rested on this very once again basic stylized fact that Koleski discovered you know some time ago that right. government deficits are a direct contribution to. Yeah. Um, to a private uh, profits and corporate profits and private sector surpluses. Well, that leads directly into the next thing I wanted to talk about. Um, and that was, I remember, and I hope I remember this cor correctly. Uh, I don't remember where the conference was, but I was coming into the room as you were leaving. Um, I was coming in to present, you had just finished. And I, oh, what are you working on? Um, and it was the, um, I guess the, the, the line of research you were doing to look at what, where did the money go? Where did the money say from the, um, American, what, what's it called investment in recovery act or whatever it was of, of 2009, 
where did that money go? Who did those? Now, you know, they're, they're clearly spending a deficit uh, to address a crisis, and we're all in favor of that. But where did the money go? And I, I, I assigned um, your work in class because I love telling this story about, okay, but you you start, and, and again, I, I think I'm right here. Uh, you, you started with playing around with a Koleski model, uh, got the theoretical model, you know, that, that, that made sense to you then shifted over to the empirical side to actually have a look at, um, you know, exactly where, uh, you know, where the money was going. Is, is that an accurate description of what you were doing at the time? Yeah, I, I think that's fair to say. I mean, for me, I've always been interested in the question of uh, what type of fiscal policy. You know, it was clear from the framework that fiscal policy has more firepower. Right. Um, anyone who studied Keynes or Minsky also appreciates um, the many reasons why. But I've always been very interested in how fiscal policy has evolved over time to lose its firepower, indeed. And mm. it's not just a matter of size. It's not just a matter of, uh, kind of these austerity policies, but it's also a, a matter of direction. So um, one of the things that I uh, did using the Koleski and Minsky framework is just play around a little bit with what Minsky um, argued is the fundamental price equation in the economy. And basically right. was trying to figure out, you know, what would a fully employed economy with government look like? And uh, what would be the impact on that economy? And he, Minsky argued that, you know, government can be a, both a blessing and a curse. A blessing in the sense that, you know, it can stabilize an unstable economy. It can offset declines in consumption and investment. Um, it tends to do it in a way to, he said, you know, in, impart an inflationary bias on the economy. You know, it supports markups, but it also, the way we, fi the way we finance investment really um, creates this, um, uh, this process of increasing financial assets. So there's really no lid on, on these speculative waves of, of investment. Mm -hmm. And so he was really curious, you know, he was asking the question, is there a way to do things better? And I, I was trying to play around with the number of scenarios using some basic assumptions. You know, what would an economy look like if that economy were supported through government expenditure that was exclusively dedicated to investment subsidies and tax cuts? And then what would that economy look like if let's say the primary method of support was just unemployment insurance, just income support, yeah. versus what would it be like if the public sector had a program, an employment program, kind um, of an employer of last resort program that would act as an automatic stabilizer. So yeah. using that very basic Koleskian and Minskian framework, we can sort out uh, the relative effectiveness, if you will, of fiscal policy. We can figure out which one is more inflationary. And it turns out you know, investment-led policies tend to be more inflationary. We can sort out which ones are you know, more likely to produce and secure full employment. And in fact, when I modeled the employer of last resort, it was quite clear that policy is not inflationary. In fact, it offsets these inflationary price pressures in the, in the private sector. So so it's just this can be done at this theoretical level using mm. the straightforward Keynesian Koleskian tools. But then, um, you know, I looked at the 2008 crisis and tried to figure out, okay, we, it, it wasn't enough, but we did appropriate a sizable fiscal package. Uh, what did we get in, in return? And indeed, the package was once again 
formulated around these tax subsidies for firms, large you know, tax cuts to households, which was useful help support unemployment insurance, which was useful. But then we ended up with the biggest jobless um, recovery. And the package was large enough to um, create uh, a kind of a New Deal policy, direct employment approach, uh, where we could have literally wiped out all of unemployment with the money that was appropriated. And so it's really about direction and size. And all that needs to be done is to provide some kind of assurance that the recovery will be sustained. And unemployment insurance, as essential as it is, does not provide that insurance. We do need to create the job opportunities as well. So that was one of the things that I was interested in. But the other was looking at um, what happened to the distribution of income, because that Koleskian model also tells you uh, whether um, labor income or capital income uh, is favored given the different fiscal policy. And so I, I took the Piketty data set and I asked a simple question, you know, when the economy grows, who, who gains? Um, and then it turns out that the, um, there is a big shift in the distribution of income. He uses tax data, which is flawed like most, most data sets is, but it does reflect market incomes. It actually reflects incomes that are earned through employment or various other activities, including financial income. So you can separate those. But when you have jobless recovery, surprise, surprise, uh, the, and when the vast majority of us rely on employment for our incomes, then clearly the you know 80%, 90% of families are not going to um, benefit from the growth. And indeed, even during the recovery in the first few years, their real incomes, average real income had fallen. So a huge shift in the income distribution. And you can kind of map that against the change in philosophy. In the post-war era, we had far more public employment, public investment projects. In the 70s, we shifted towards tax cuts. Um, and, you know, in the uh, in the 2000s, uh, we really aim to stabilize financial incomes through the stabilization of the financial sector. And, um, you know, the labor market was really left behind. Yeah, yeah. And um, <clears throat> I've done that. Well, you you were you helped me out with uh, reading through a chapter uh, of a book I'm working on right now. And somewhere in that chapter, and I probably got this from you in the first place, but looking at how much money they spent on the uh, American Reinvestment Recovery Act. Um, and as you pointed out, uh, oh wait, it took like seven years, I think, for unemployment to finally get down to what it was right before the crisis. Or we could have close to zero unemployment for a fraction of the spending, uh, practically overnight. And, and, and um, it, it is... When you show that to students, you know, let's just multiply the number of unemployed by an even very generous wage, although still a, you know, a, a, something something around, when I say generous, I mean generous compared to minimum wage, uh, something closer to a living wage, it's 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 unbelievable, the comparison. So the irony, one of the ironies that, that comes out of the MMT literature is that uh, the federal government is self-financing, but it's actually a lot cheaper to do it this way, uh, yeah. even though that, you know, ultimately it doesn't matter. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in 2008, you know, the budget was somewhere around $840 billion spent over four years. And that was enough to employ every single unemployed person 
at the living wage with generous allowance for materials. Yes. And my argument was that you don't even have to do that. Just employ 5 million. The private yeah, sector yeah, yeah. will do the rest. Just kickstart the economy and then the private sector will resume its hiring and folks will find employment. And that's one of the benefits of, of this approach, this employment approach, that it is also self-limiting. That it's not mm -hmm. endless, you know, job creation by government, but it is this kind of anti-cyclical employment support um, that allows the um, um, the economy to recover on much more sustainable basis, and it also public employment uh, would shrink when private employment grows. Right. You can also look at the scale of the expenditure during COVID. I mean, we had two uh, different philosophies in how to stabilize the economy compared to, you know, to our European counterparts. Um, in Europe, you know, despite its kind of institutional straitjackets, yeah. um, countries chose the payroll uh, protection in the form of um, uh, guaranteeing payroll, you know, keep you, keeping people on the job and paying their wages uh, while... Uh, the pandemic uh, during the months, the worst months of the pandemic. In the US, we uh, kind of allowed unemployment to spike all the way to 14.7%. And Europe did not see anywhere near these levels of unemployment. And then we provided generous unemployment insurance, um, which is, you know, all well and good because uh, all is well when it ends well. But that money that we appropriated was enough to pay every single wage in the economy, every single wage, right. and hire the unemployed for the three months of the pandemic. Um, of course, we didn't have to do that. We could have done just kept people in their jobs, covered those wages, and have, you know, just, uh, you know, avoid this period of high unemployment. And I think it's important to avoid those periods, even though labor markets tend to be doing reasonably well now. There are huge scarring effects, even for of temporary unemployment. And uh, policy can avoid these. Policies can act in a kind of preventative way that um, doesn't permit these huge fluctuations of unemployment. And you kept saying full employment, full employment was always the primary reason for designing public fiscal policy, right? Pretty much all economists of all stripes, mainstream or non-mainstream, agree that this is a important policy objective, except we don't seem to be doing a very good job with either monetary or fiscal tools in securing durable, full employment. Well, and you you have an, <clears throat> another piece that I would recommend everyone uh, run out and grab. I don't remember what year it was. It was one of the Levy policy pieces on, and this was before COVID, unemployment as an, as an epidemic. Uh, and and the job program as a uh, uh, you know vaccination uh, that these things spread uh, just like a disease does uh, very very good piece and it talks about the social cost and, and as you just said even short periods of unemployment can have scarring effects one of the numbers from that paper and I don't remember what percentage it was that, that there had been a, a a number of studies on um, how often suicide uh, is is related to job loss, and, and it was a um, uh, you know horrifying number. Uh, so it's not just oh no, someone doesn't have a job. It's right. oh no, someone doesn't have self respect anymore. Someone yeah is giving up on the system. So I think that this is really a research area that is ripe for further development. You know, macroeconomists don't tend to think about these social costs. 
but they are quite real and they impact the fundamental structure of the economy. We tend to limit our analysis to um, loss of income um, as the primary scarring effect for the unemployed themselves and potentially loss of output, you know, some kind of heuristic process. Right. But in fact, the, the problems are much bigger. There are, you know, uh, mental, physical costs that are significant. You mentioned, you know, suicide. It's, it was something like nine times greater than what was previously believed. But there are multiple ways in which um, unemployment intersects with the mental health crisis, with the opiate, uh, opium epidemic, with the, right. um, uh, but the, the costs then extend to families. So we don't tend to account for these, that mm -hmm. there are costs on the children, um, you know, costs of poverty, costs of malnourishment, poor performance in schools, the distress that a partner of an unemployed person experiences. And then there are other kinds of social problems that are um, can be effectively addressed with an employment strategy. I mean, you know, we, we know that recidivism rates are very high when folks are not able to transition to stable employment post-release, uh, and uh, that this could be an important safety net for others who are experiencing other social deprivations. I mean, there is a reason why the, the um, housing advocacy community uh, has talked about uh, you know, the job guarantee proposal, because they understand that homelessness can uh, can be very uh, uh, well supported by eliminating homelessness through also guaranteeing employment. So in other words, if we start thinking in these broader comprehensive ways about the impact of unemployment, then uh, first the costs we will realize are already paid and very large, and there is a better way of dedicating our fiscal resources. Um, and the other thing that you just mentioned that I think, you know, macroeconomists should probably pay attention to is that, you know, we tend to react to crises when things are too late. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We do know that we need to have structural automatic stabilizers, but we don't focus on the employment stabilizer. And a policy on standby that can provide employment opportunities on demand in rain or shine can serve as this kind of preventative tool, you know, as it, it surely will put a big dent into mass layoffs. You know, if Home Depot is suddenly laying off 5,000 people and they're able to find employment in a kind of public employment, New Deal type of project, the way the economy gets stabilized is far superior than the way we're doing it today. Right, right. And the way we're doing it today, uh, has zero impact on climate. Um, and, and so I, I think that something that uh, my impression has been that, that a lot of the job guarantee stuff has talked about, hey, it's not profitable. It is clearly not profitable to address climate change. Um, so the private sector will never do it. So how are we going to do it? Now, that, you know, not simply through a job program because we want something permanent in place, but I think a philosophical shift, uh, a philosophical shift is important there. Speaking of which, we seem to worry so much more about inflation than unemployment, uh, both in the discipline and, and, and in policy in general. Um, and I'm going <clears> to <throat> let everybody in on a secret here. I don't think I've ever said this out loud before. I don't care if a job guarantee causes some inflation. I simply don't care. 
because uh, the problems are nowhere near the same. And, and people cannot think of inflation as a single number because it never is. It's never a single number. It is concentrated in specific markets. Um, and so, you know, if, if, if people's rising incomes cause them to want to buy more Carmex lip protection thing and it causes the price of this to go up, well, that's one of the times when the market actually works well because it will induce people to make more of this, which is what the consumers wanted. So you know, demand pull inflation to me is never, I don't see it as a problem anyway, uh, that, you know, okay, well then the, the market will, you know, uh, adjust, uh, people will substitute and so forth. Uh, the, the problems with inflation are always things like Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, and that ain't caused by, you know, we, I'm, I know we've all heard this, that the, that was caused by the um, COVID checks. That's where that inflation came from. Yeah, maybe. Have you looked at the month-to-month -month changes and what changed, what specifically changed? Anyway, that, that's me on my soapbox here real quick. I, 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 I think yeah, it, is, it is useful to say, going back to our discussion on Kalaski and Minsky's fundamental price equation, it, it, I think it's important to say that it's because the job guarantee is self-limiting that it doesn't cause demand pull inflation, yes. that it is... It is when the public sector starts beefing up its hiring, the when the private sector beefs up its hiring, the public sector will shrink a little bit. This is these are the labor flows that happen on any given day uh, of the industries currently. You know, adding one additional program that secures full employment will act in the same way that uh, you know people will be pulled out from the public program into the private and vice versa. And then there is some kind of um, measure to um, uh, to mitigate the demand pool process. Now, if you have a job guarantee and that gives you a living wage and that uh, suddenly makes a whole bunch of businesses uh, unviable, businesses that rely on paying poverty wages, yes, yes. Um, then, you know, that is a disruption that I think is probably worthwhile given its social effects. Right. And um, if companies that decide to match the living wage need to increase their prices. If there's a price adjustment, and to that end, I, I agree with you that that is a, a social, um, uh, you know, it costs, I wouldn't call it a cost, but it's it's kind of a price increase that's very much worth paying. Right, and right. if we are finding that this fully employed economy is seeing inflationary pressures of the kind we just saw during 2020, where there were bottlenecks in terms of access to real resources, um, then we can use, well, the public investment program or the public employment program to alleviate some of these bottlenecks, you know, whether it's you know, childcare, whether it is, you know, yeah. public services or whatever it is, logistical issues. Um, we have direct, you know, other tools to manage inflationary pressures. Right, right, right. And, and in a, with a government that is self-financing, we have so many more options in order to employ those tools uh, than we would do if we thought to ourselves, well, gosh, it'd be nice to give people a living wage, but we just can't afford it. Um, yeah, it, it, insane. So uh, going back to then, um, actually that wasn't uh, talking about the previous paper, but going back to the uh, sort of MMT position being agnostic uh, with respect to whether or not the government has a deficit or surplus. Uh, so what you're, what you're arguing then is, is that what it's not agnostic about is we want to achieve full employment at a living wage and whatever gets us there gets us there. The the, the, the budget um, balance is merely a residual. It's what got left over once we got done. That's why we don't care. Uh, Correct. And 
I, I would say that MMT is very clear that we do not have to have the unemployment inflation trade-off. You know, mm -hmm. that is kind of a core um, theory in conventional thinking that informs policy. You know, this, we, we watched the conversations over the last year, how many economists tried to convince us that we may have to put up with very high unemployment levels to tame inflation. And luckily, you know, so far we have avoided those results, right? Those yeah, yeah. disastrous consequences. But the, the idea is there. The, the you know the tool fundamentally is there that we have to reduce demand incomes employment to be able to tame inflation now heterodox thought has for a very long time criticized this uh this approach um but i think it, it's it's fair to say that the job guarantee is kind of a robust alternative to this approach because it says hey um, we can secure long-run full employment. We can do it in a way without introducing inflationary pressure, because I think that's really key about the job guarantee. It doesn't introduce new inflationary pressure. It is self-limited. Right, right. You can have inflation from other sources, energy, food, as we just discussed. Job guarantee can help you address these, right? right. Um, and to that end, it does provide an alternative, I think, also policy paradigm. So MMT typically does not go around and, and advocate for concrete policies. This would be one important exception because we think that we should not be inflicting pain on society to chase right. you know, stable prices. Right, right, right. Yeah, and, and your point about is sort of once, uh, once and for all shift in prices uh, is absolutely right um, that, you know, Presumably, those industries that depend most heavily on minimum wage, which is at least here in where I live, about half of what a living wage is, a very ungenerous living wage, uh, by the way, um, but they're going to be the ones that their prices are going to go up. And and maybe we can't go out to eat as often, uh, you know, and, and I use the example of, well, gosh, maybe we shouldn't do the Emancipation Proclamation because cotton might become more expensive. Yeah, it might. It just might. But that's kind of okay, because it's not really the goal. The goal is social justice here, and, and not as social justice that I think we're going to have a lot of arguments with a lot of people on. Yeah, if you're working, you should be able to put food on the table, uh, and, yeah. and that's it. And by the way, there are some heterodox economists who are not uh, locked in on the job guarantee. And um, I was talking to my wife, Melanie, about it. And she's actually quite vocal about this, or at least in the car with me. Um, well, then what the hell's their idea? Um, and, and that's it. I, I don't know what else there possibly is that could uh, that, that could be uh, such an, a, a, a tool to address these basic social problems, plus these other social issues that we have, like climate change, like elder care. It's going to be a huge issue um, with the changing population. And we already basically support, the government does, uh, all, all the retirement homes and so forth. Um, so, but, but this could be done with a specific goal in mind and not ad hoc. Um, anyway, uh, uh, that's a long way of saying I agree. No. No, I, I absolutely agree. I think that, you know, it's worthwhile for the heterodox community to maybe interrogate what is our alternative you know yeah. what, what do we fundamentally commit to because if we do not commit to um the direct approach and the guaranteed approach then we necessarily are accepting a some form of economy that does not directly or doesn't guarantee employment so typically colleagues 
would talk about a hot economy. Like, let's just get the economy hot, which means let's add enough fiscal support and get investment going. But I think if you take the Minskian and Kaleskian perspective seriously, you understand that that is, number one, more inflationary. Right. Considering the current mode of production, which heavily relies on fossil fuels, that is environmentally destructive. It right. does not have the automatic stabilization features of the job guarantee. And you're not guaranteed that you're going to do it, you know, as Keynes yeah. told us. You might get full employment on the off chance and might stay for a little bit, but the forces of market economy will undo this. Yeah. And so really the choices are only two. You either guarantee employment or you have guaranteed unemployment. Uh, and, you yeah. know, then when you have guaranteed unemployment, then we play this, this game of de redefining it. Well, okay, let's call full employment 2% or 3%. Why is this an acceptable definition of full employment? Yeah, I, I, I've thought of um, government policy aimed at at, at uh, achieving full employment as like taking a bucket uh, and putting it in your front yard. And the way we currently do deficit spending is we now turn on the sprinkler system uh, and we hope that some of that water gets in the bucket. Uh, and the job guarantee is, hey, why don't we just take the hose and fill the bucket up directly? Uh, because, you know, the, 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 the mainstream idea with deficit spending is that we that really jobs only come from the private sector. Real jobs only come from there. So we must stimulate the private sector to get it to hire these people. Well, labor is a cost. Uh, and so I have a lot of friends who, who uh, look at the self-checkout lane at the store as, as a terrible offense. Uh, and I don't. The terrible offense is that there's not a job guarantee. So that those people that got laid off have somewhere else to go. I. I'm like most professors, an introvert. I don't really want to talk to anybody while I'm at the store. I put my headphones in. I go to the self-checkout lane. Uh, so, you know, is this merely to make me feel less guilty? I don't think so. I, I think that it's about, you know, hey, the private sector is going to continually want to reduce its reliance on labor continuously. So if we want to guarantee it, then let's put the let's put the hose right in the bucket. Um and there are far more um, socially useful activities that we all, you know, we realize that we are under-provisioned. You know, we mm -hmm. brought up climate. I mean, you know, the, I keep saying that the climate is not a paying customer. You know, you can try to <clears throat> engineer some kind of market process to incentivize the firms to do climate investment. And we already see it. It does not work. It does not deliver the scale of investment that's necessary. Uh, and we need very much, you know, bold kind of approach. We right. have care services that are under provision, the kind of things that make our lives better, whether it is public parks, whether it is public pools, whether it is after school activities, there's just really countless um, right. activities that we can be doing. And so I'm with you on the automation, you know, the technology does not need to be the villain here. We should uh, embrace it and there should be jobs that absolutely must be automated tomorrow, you know, right, meat right, right. Uh, yeah. dangerous, you know, electric work, uh, because right. we have m many other good jobs that we can create and that can be done with uh, with this public employment approach. Right. Uh, it, it's funny that within a household, the, the, the economy, regardless of what Gary Becker says, uh, within a household, the economy is very different. Uh, we get a dishwasher 
Uh, and it doesn't put one of our, you know, one of our family members out of work. Um, we get a washer and dryer and all of a sudden, you know, little Jimmy can't eat anymore. Um, no, we, we did that so that we could have more leisure time and to do things that we enjoy and socialize and play computer games or, or, or whatever. But in the broader macro economy, well, it's not the same because you don't earn the right to eat just because you're a member of our family outside the economy. Uh, you earn the right to eat because you made profit for somebody. All very sad. Yeah, and I think COVID really allowed us to see what was possible. Um, at least in the United States, we expanded the safety net. Um, mm -hmm. You know, unemployment insurance became more generous. Um, larger cohorts were covered, um, but we also expanded Medicare and Medicaid, and and we implemented a universal child allowance mm -hmm. and. It was perhaps the most successful post-war policy that we had seen. It in mm -hmm. one given year, childhood poverty dropped by fifty percent, and as soon as the policy expired, it spiked back up. What is Congress doing today? They are now trying to expand the child tax credit, but the child tax credit has work requirements, and of course, jobs are not guaranteed. So we right. are back to this old kind of punitive system where you have to kind of validate your value and your you know worth by you know, uh, scrambling to find jobs that are not there. Right. And we know that there are public policies that need to be separated from employment, just healthcare and uh, child allowances. I mean, Medicare, even before the federal program uh, ex uh, expired, states had already begun to revert to the old eligibility criteria, which, you know, threw off millions of people off these off these programs. So we are again reverting back to this very punitive uh, form of fiscal support, but it was clear that um, universal healthcare was possible. It yeah. is clear that universal child uh, child uh, assurance is possible. And to me, it is also very clear that if we have this mobilization approach to climate action, uh, that is also possible because surely we produced vaccines on short order and clinics yeah. and all of that. Maybe not as you know as as robust as I would have liked to see, but we were forced to act and we did. And so these are teachable moments that you know this is the sort of thing you can do when you're not in the middle of a crisis, when the economy is not in a free fall, fall when we can have folks who sit and and you know plan out what might. Uh, be a useful, you know, public investment and public employment. Right. And you mentioned we we, we found out that we can provide health care. Are there any other countries in the world that do provide health care to their entire population? I'm just curious about that. I don't know. But, uh, you know, I've heard rumors. Um, That's right. <laughs> That's right. Well, um, okay. So, Pavlina, I know you spend a lot of time and I greatly admire this and I have I have emailed you and, and Stephanie Kelton on occasion to thank you guys for your energy because I don't have that much. I, 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 and we need people out there talking to policymakers, talking to citizens uh, and so on about, about these ideas that are so incredibly, th these would be common sense if something hadn't already been pushed in our heads to start with. Uh, and so I was curious, uh, you know, I know you've, you've gone you know, all around the world, um, what has your primary audience been, or, or has it just varied a lot? Has it been economists or policymakers or the general public or, or what? 
Yeah, it really varies uh, what I'm talking about. When mm. I'm talking about MMT and the monetary system, uh, the Bernanke doctrine, naturally my my audience is <clears throat> folks in finance. This, this stuff resonates with them and they understand it very quickly because you know they need to get it right. Um, also because they see operations. So I would say that uh, some of the first captive audience for MMT ideas are folks from finance. Um, uh, when we start teasing out the policy implications, uh, fiscal policy, you know, this is where folks tend to disagree. You know, some people have some kind of, you know, natural aversion to government action. And what I try to clarify is the macro kind of benefits of fiscal policy. And I will say that I have found um, interest among central bankers, actually monetary policy um, economists who then appreciate the kind of stabilizing features of fiscal policy that uh, I talk about. The job guarantee has had uh, a really just, you know, it's been very heartwarming to see the interest that has come from all corners. Um, it's not, you know, I'm not sure if uh, I've been able to to convince many economists per se, but folks who come from adjacent disciplines, who deal with the social effects of economic insecurity, I think that that resonates very much uh, with them. And so I have been really you know, pleasantly surprised to see um, how housing guarantee advocates have embraced the proposal yeah. um, uh, climate activists in particular. And uh, I mean, the thing that uh, is perhaps most encouraging is that young people just get it immediately. Um, the Sunrise Movement had a whole um, job guarantee uh, call and public action. Um, I have worked with local uh, groups who have centered their, you know, local, you know, urban development, rural development, uh, their kind of local activism around the idea of a job guarantee. Um, I find interest in from service uh, unions, some service unions, but just literally just yesterday, uh, I learned that the Chicago public schools had their uh, debates centered around the job guarantee, as well as their, you know, debates I hear from debates in California. So young students, and I've given uh, talks to high school students mm -hmm. as well. And I think that the um, the idea that there is something that they can do, uh, especially regarding the climate, and that they can do it in this um, concerted way with, with the rethinking of the New Deal approach and the yeah. job guarantee does resonate with them. Will you tell, uh, actually, I just realized um, that the listeners may not be aware of, of your book. Uh, and, and what is the title of the book? Because it's a really easy read and 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 and, and um, it, it touches on all the points that are that are at issue here in terms of, of financing, in terms of where would the jobs be? And I especially like when it closes out with, hey, here are some results of polls about how popular this idea is. And it's extremely popular. And what is the exact name of the book? Yeah, it's called The Case for Job Guarantee. It has been published now in uh, nine languages, uh, the mo most recently in Chinese. Mm -hmm. And uh, since then, I have found even more polls. Mm. It's universally, this program polls in the 70s. It almost doesn't matter which country context, you know, maybe 60s, high 60s, uh, 70s, and it polled even better during crisis. But 
also interesting is that there is bipartisan support. Yes. Um, that initially was surprising to me, but then of course, you know, job insecurity affects everybody, every community. And it, it, it is, um, I think it is a policy that has not been tried in recent history. And we probably are going to gal galvanize more support than we can imagine if that became a front and center um, piece of legislation. You know, um, talking about the bi bipartisan support, uh, Jamie Galbraith, who was the first guest on this program, by the way, uh, he had a series, as you know, of, of um, conferences down at University of Texas, which is not UT, because I went to UT, which is in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, and uh, one of the, I don't know if you were there for this one or not, uh, Pavlina, but there was, at the very last session, there was an elderly man who spoke last and um, he was having difficulty hearing what other people were saying and this sort of thing. And so my initial uh, gut reaction was, I don't know what this guy's going to talk about. It was brilliant. And he was a labor, he was a former labor leader. Absolutely fantastic way. And, and his issue was, how do we get people to listen to our ideas? And, and he said several things that really stuck with me, but one of them, uh, I'll just mention one right here. And that was, if you can get people to agree with you for reasons that are different than your own, yeah, that's fine. Uh, and so why do, you know, that's close enough. Why do conservatives like the job program? Eh, a bunch of lazy people out there getting welfare, make them go do something. You know what? If that's the way you're going to justify it to yourself, I'm not going to sit here and fight you over that. Uh, I've got you on my side. Uh, and so I, I suspect that's where some of the, uh, I know, when I talk to my father-in-law, that's where his support for this idea comes from, is that, you know, well, we're giving them money anyway. We might as well make them do something. And clearly that is not what you and I are thinking. But do you spend a lot of time arguing with that? Yeah, close enough. Uh, well, no, not not in this particular way. I, I, I think that some differences probably can be bridged. But um, to the extent that we can envision uh, something that can be done, you know, I mean, Whatever, whatever your political stripe, we all walk around our communities and we say, oh, I wish this was done. Oh, I wish this was fixed. And I think that this is a place where we can agree on. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, maybe not everyone will be sold out on the climate agenda. But if you live in a coastal community that is decimated over and over by fires, floods, hurricanes, and there is a little... Um, program right there in your community that stands ready to address these issues, then that you might think a little bit different. I, I am going to do a plug here um, of, of another book uh, that I um, finished reading, and that is by the journalist um, and uh, author Cory Doctorow, who wrote oh, yeah. a, a yeah. book called The Lost Cause, which is centered around the job guarantee. It is centered exactly on what you're talking about, how folks of progressive and conservative stripes navigate the world that is changing and that is changing because of the climate crisis. And he also envisions in this really beautiful way how the job guarantee can be organized and how folks can participate uh, in it on as needed basis to address concrete things. So it's really a wonderful piece of work. So I think uh, folks oh, should wow. read. Yeah, I had not heard of that. Um, the uh, you know, and this, the other thing is that if you get people to buy in, once a policy is in place, uh, then the benefits become obvious. You know, th there was a great deal of resistance to federal deposit insurance. 
um, from banking industry, from, from FDR himself. It took a while to get, but then once it was in place and once it did stabilize, uh, and once it became a selling point to be a bank that was, you know, that, that had the FDIC sticker on the door, all of a sudden it was incredibly popular. Uh, so, you know. I mean, this was very much, this was very much true during the FDR era. The Civilian uh -huh. Conservation uh -huh. Corps was hugely popular and people saw it as an entitlement. They, they understood how, you know, how great it was. And, uh, you know, they're the so-called New Deal Democrats, folks who converted because of the program. Um, of political affiliations. So we've seen that the popularity of these programs, and I will say we don't have to reinvent the wheel because we have seen models of implementation in both the developed world, you know, right here in the United States, but also developing world. And, you know, there's a, there's a very big, the biggest job guarantee program in India that offers lots and lots of lessons on how you could do a program that is self-organized from the ground up, that involves community input, you know, um, and uh, addresses concrete needs that are identified by the community. Um, there is a program in South Africa that was temporary called Employment Stimulus that was very comprehensive because it wasn't just, you know, uh, doing, you know, uh, the work that villagers needed like wells and water, but they also did arts and education programs and climate programs. So it was really well integrated. And then you look to Europe, there are small programs, but they uh, seem to fit very well the European model, like the Austria job guarantee program or the French zero long-term unemployment areas. In other words, we have uh, plenty of uh, models and examples of how this could be done in different contexts. Um, and we just need to be rethinking the scale um, and the kind of also urgent needs that we can be addressing with such uh, policies. Amen, sister. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, Rowan Gray has talked about the fact that, that that a place where we could go to find support is law. Uh, that, you know, how many PhD economists do we spit out every year? Uh, a much smaller number than lawyers. And a much smaller percentage of those are going to be open to the ideas we're talking about right here. He says, you know, maybe it's 10% uh, of a law school class um, and these people understand policy uh, and so forth. And so I don't I don't know how we accomplish this. But you mentioned young people, uh, young lawyers, um, you know, places where we can go to get some leverage here and, and get support for these ideas. Uh, I had never thought about that before, but Rowan had mentioned it um, at the. Uh... Yeah. And the, uh, the sociologist, uh, uh, Tressie mm -hmm. McClellan Cotton, you know, she makes a really good argument where she says, it's such an essential tool to make sure that um, folks who <laughs> graduate yeah. know that there is a job out there on the other side that we pursue our education so much under duress in the hope of getting that job, in the hope of winning the game of musical chairs. Now imagine if you kind of shift the paradigm and even, you know, my college students who's probably chances in the labor market are far greater than folks in the community college. Um, even they can say, hang on a second, you know, maybe I'm not going to, you, know, uh, uh, you know, scramble to get that uh, uh, law job or finance job. Let me just do a climate court for a while. Let me just regroup, you know, without dealing with that economic insecurity. It could change the, the way folks make decisions. Right. Um, when I talk about Marx in my continuing perspectives class, uh, I point out that 
what Marx wanted for you was for you to major in whatever you like, not major in what's going to get me a job. Um, and so, you know, uh, uh, that's a popular idea. Uh, gosh, what if I didn't have to think about, oh, my gosh, I also have to get a job. Uh, I guess I better be an accountant. Uh, but I really like drawing stuff. Uh, so anyway, yeah, the, 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 uh, so many things uh, this addresses. And it's such a simple idea that is easily implemented, which is um, so frustrating. Uh, have you seen The Wire, the the the, the crime show set in Baltimore? Uh, well, it, 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 the series is done now. So depressing about the inner city. And I swear, Melanie and I watched the whole thing through. We, and I kept thinking, you know, if there was a job guarantee, there's no show here. It doesn't exist. I mean, you don't have these inner city kids thinking to themselves correctly, accurately. I got no chance. And if I don't get involved in crime or whatever, um, I'm not going to be involved with anything. Uh, so, you know, so, yes, the job guarantee would be negative and that it would destroy some really good TV shows because we wouldn't have this uh, unnecessary suffering anymore that we could build a show around. Well, you, you, you know, we can uh, get the job guarantee authors to write those shows. There you go. There you go. Well, and that's the thing. You know, under FDR, um, they did things like sent historians around to uh, uh, Melanie and I for our honeymoon. Um, and and I, I recall this was probably my idea. We went to Civil War battlefields. Uh, we also did some fun stuff, too. Uh, but at Appomattox, I picked up a book, uh, bought a book that was interviews with ex-slaves. Um, and this was because of FDR's program to pay historians to go around. You know, there wasn't necessarily a profitable market for this, but this part of American history was going to be gone. If we didn't write this down, these were people who were children when slavery ended. Um, uh, and, um, nobody had bothered to sit down and interview these people in any, you know, and, and, and so, you know, so this is, again, something I think you can get even people on the right to say, well, yes, our history is important, you know, that, that we want these things written down and so forth. Yes, I think, I mean, that that is, you know, more of a philosophical uh, point that but the job guarantee could flip the script a little bit here and that we don't do um, policy uh, on the premise that we can extract some kind of profit motive from that activity. And we stop, again, like I said, you know, engineering artificially these market-based solutions. Um, oral histories, as you said, you know, don't have an obvious, you know, uh, monetary return, but it is essential for, you know, nation building. But, you know, think of, you know, if, if you go and enjoy a Jackson Pollock, right, at the Modern Art Museum, you know, he was employed by the New Deal. Um, you know, authors, playwrights, I mean, this is, you know, this is an important part of, you know, of our life. Why should the artists be hungry? Um, the New Deal did that. Um, I love this other example of women on horseback that went to remote areas to bring books. And mm -hmm. most remote areas that didn't have public libraries or schools, uh, they do this in the worst kind of winter conditions. <laughs> and it's really extraordinary. So the beauty of the job guarantee is that it is a targeted approach. Like it is, you know, it's a local approach. It's not, we don't create job guarantees just in some places, but in every county, in every community, which was how the New Deal um, did it. And again, it values uh, many different kinds of activities. And I think, you know, I, I, you know, I think the, the most important thing is that we have some very urgent business. Uh, if we are serious about, you know, providing some kind of basic security, 
we have to tackle the climate crisis and we do need an all hands on deck approach. And I think this is the reason why the job guarantee was plugged in into the various uh, climate frameworks from the Green New Deal to the Green Deal. Even in the IPCC report, there's a recognition that you have to have a just transition of workers. You know, it has to come with oh, assurance right, right, right. of a good green job on the other end. And I, I think that intersection is very important. So we can have all sorts of philosophical debates of like why, what, but we also have urgent business. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today, Pavlina. Thanks, John. It was great talking with you. I thoroughly enjoyed it. To our listeners, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. And please give us a rating and let us know your thoughts in the comments. And keep an eye out for our future releases. And be sure to subscribe to stay up to date. You can follow the Levy Institute on Twitter slash X. I refuse to call it X, but it's here on my script. Uh, Instagram and Facebook at Levy Econ. L-E-V-Y-E-C-O-N. Uh, you can also subscribe to the Institute's newsletter at levyinstitute.org and see the show notes for some of our recommended publications for further reading on the topic and links to some of Professor Chernova's work. Stay tuned. Thank you.